This is no king that is hidden. This is a king that is to be revealed. And whatever your understanding of the kingdom may be this morning, you need to deal with that reality that before our eyes is a kingdom and a king that comes with great power that is undeniable before many eyewitnesses. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I am preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Mark chapter 4 this morning, and our text will be verses 35 through 41 of Mark chapter 4. Now hear the word of God. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, that is to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the holy authoritative, all-sufficient, inerrant, inspired Word of God. Please be seated as we bow for prayer.
Our Lord and our God, we come to a text this morning that puts your power, your authority, and your glory on full display. We come as your people this morning in the midst of many storms, fearful at times, anxiety-ridden at other times, needful for a word from on high to provide comfort and solace for our weary souls. We thank you, Lord, for this account, which was a real account that reveals to us the safety that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask, dear Father, that you would open this text before our eyes, that we might see it with fresh eyes, that we might behold the glory of our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. We have before us this morning one of my favorite texts in all of the events of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an event in which Jesus reveals not only the fullness of His humanity because He's sleeping in the stern of a boat, but also the fullness of His deity, His power to hush the storm and to quiet the waters. I don't know where you are at in your life and what sort of trials and tribulations that you may be facing, but the account before us has enough spiritual application to touch your very need this morning, to remove the fears and anxieties that you have in life as you look to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on Mark, R. Kent Hughes tells the true story chronicled in Moody Monthly, in which he tells the story about D.L. Moody. And really, it's a story not about D.L. Moody, but it's a story about a man that you're probably less familiar with, a man by the name of Ira Sankey. Sankey was Moody's co-evangelist and soloist during those crusade years, And Moody hired Sankey in the year 1870 after hearing him sing publicly. By 1875, Moody and Sankey were known broadly and even internationally. And although we would not agree with the methodology of D.L. Moody and some of the theology of D.L. Moody, there is no denying the fact that he was an immensely popular figure. And the Lord used him in ways that were expansive. But on Christmas Eve of 1875, Ira Sankey, Moody's co-evangelist, was traveling by steamboat up the Delaware River. It was a gorgeous starlit night, and on board were passengers that persuaded Sankey, this famous singer and evangelist, to sing a hymn. He selected that evening Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And as his baritone voice filled the night air, a man walked up to him after he was finished and asked him a question. The question was this. He said, did you serve in the Union Army? Sankey, who was surprised at such a question, said, yes, I served in the spring of 1860. The man then asked Sankey an odd question. He said, you didn't happen to be on guard duty on a bright, moonlit night. Sinky said, well, yes, I was. 
This Confederate veteran began to tell Sankey that he was serving in the Confederate Army during that time. And he saw Sankey standing guard duty. And this is what he said. He said, The full light of the moon shone on you as I hid in the shadows and raised my musket and took aim to kill you. But then you began singing. Just as you did this night, your eyes were raised to heaven as you sang. And so I said to myself, I'll let him finish his song and then I'll shoot him. But the song you sang was the same one you sang tonight. And the one line stuck out to me, We are thine, do thou befriend us, be the guardian of our way. And this Confederate veteran continued, As I heard you sing that night, I began to think of my childhood, and I began to think of my God-fearing mother, who used to sing that very song to me. So that by the time you were finished singing, it was impossible for me to take aim Again, I said to myself, the Lord who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. And my arm of its own accord dropped limp by my side. A true account that tells us that God spared Sankey from certain death. The Confederate soldier certainly didn't believe this was a coincidence that on that particular night, he would be singing that particular song with that particular line that would compel him not to slay Sankey. The point of the story is that none of us will die one second before or one second after our appointed time. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And the account before us reveals that very reality. A dramatic account that from a human perspective, everyone in the boat that night and the boat surrounding Jesus and the disciples should have perished. But God was in control. We can see ourselves there with Jesus. We can feel the terror of the disciples amidst the winds and the waves. We can imagine the shock of Jesus stilling the weather. We can imagine the quietness of the boat as they passed five miles to the other side after the calm of the storm. Everyone's so fearful they're afraid to say a word. This was surely a traumatic experience for the disciples, coupled with a problematic experience as well, because they had in their boat a man who could control the weather at a moment's notice. Thankful to be alive? Yes. Scared to death? Absolutely. So they say at the end of the account, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Well, it is interesting, as we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've noted the fact that Mark writes the shortest account of the life of our Lord. And yet, in this account, it must have been one of Mark's favorite because he adds details to the story that the other gospel writers don't add. It's actually longer than the other gospel writers. In this story, he gives details that only his mentor, Peter, to whom he is receiving this information from, who was an eyewitness of this event, and in the boat with Jesus could provide the details to add color to the story. This surely was an event that stuck out in the mind of the Apostle Peter, a monumental event that literally changed his life and the lives of the disciples. 
In fact, perhaps it was this event that gave Peter faith in another account to step out onto the water and to try to walk on the water as Jesus was and to meet him on the sea. But interestingly, this unforgettable storm comes right after Jesus' series of parables. That's what we've been looking at in Mark chapter 4. And we've gone in great detail to see that the parables describe one simple thing. They describe the power of the kingdom of God. The power of the kingdom of God, for example, as we saw last time, is like the grain of a mustard seed. The seed that is smaller than any other seed that is virtually microscopic. That's how the beginning of the kingdom of God is. It is imperceptible. It is mysterious how the kingdom of God can come with such power because it's established by a carpenter from rural Nazareth with a bunch of fishermen as disciples who was crucified and purportedly was raised from the grave to ascend at the right hand of the throne of God. But this seed would then flourish into a tree that would fill the garden, the branches of which would be so expansive that the birds of the air could find their shade therein. The parables reveal the power of the kingdom of God when we are patient to see the power of the kingdom of God, the bigness of the kingdom of God. Well, now as we move out of those parables, Mark wants us to understand not only the power of the kingdom of God, but more importantly, the power of the king of his kingdom. And so in this next collection of stories, beginning with the dramatic stilling of the storm in verses 35 through 41, leading on into chapter 5 where Jesus restores a a demon-possessed man, going all the way to the end of chapter 5 where Jesus heals a disease, And Jesus raises the dead. All of these accounts leave no doubt by this time in Mark's gospel regarding the identity of Jesus. He is without question the Messiah. He is God's Son. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Up to this point, He has shown His power over diseases and demons. But now He is going to show His power over the forces of nature itself. He's going to calm the storm, he's going to walk on the shore, and he's going to raise the dead to life. This is in many ways the peak of the identity of who Jesus is. When we come to the end of the account this morning, there's that question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But after we get out of chapter 5 and Jesus has healed more diseases and cast more demons out and raised people from the dead, he goes back to Nazareth and we read in chapter 6 and verse 2 that as he began to teach in the synagogue, many who heard him were astonished and they were saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And the implication is, that everyone is wondering in their hearts and their minds, this has to be God. This has to be the promised Messiah. And so Mark writes, beginning with this account of the stilling of the storm, providing details, really that none of the other gospel writers provide. He wants us to see the power of King Jesus So, for example, in verse 35, 
He provides the hour of the day. It was in the evening. Mark also tells us in verse 36, there were other boats present, which the other gospel writers don't tell us, indicating the fact that there were many more eyewitnesses to this event. We read in verse 36 that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. Another detail not provided in the other gospel writers. Verse 38 reveals the disciples kind of with a snarky, demeaning, rebuking question. Do you want us to perish? Whereas the other gospel writers are a little less harsh in the way they present the disciples and many other details. But Peter is providing to Mark details by which we can gain some insight into the authority of Jesus. We read for our public reading of Scripture, Psalm 107, a text that clearly reveals one simple reality, and that is God alone is the ruler of nature. We read in verse 25 of Psalm 107 that He commanded and raised the stormy wind. He lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their plight. And then these sailors cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distress. As verse 29 of Psalm 107 says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. This written hundreds of years before Jesus was in a boat with the disciples and did the exact same thing. Mark wants us to understand, as he builds upon Old Testament theology, That Jesus is not only fully man, Jesus is fully God. The deity of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to see this. All you have to do is go back even earlier in the Old Testament. It was God, after all, who blew an east wind to dry up the waters of the Red Sea for Israel to cross safely. And then what did He do after that? He blew it back to consume the Egyptian army and the chariots. And now this same God is opening a path on the waters for Jesus to get to the other side because there is more ministry for Jesus to do. To cast demons out. To raise people from the dead. To preach more sermons in Nazareth so that people can see the power of this King. The works of this King on full display. The wondering question of the disciples in verse 41 shows that they realized in part, at least, the implications of Jesus' power. The extent to which Jesus could do things was equivalent to the power of God Himself, pointing to the deity of Jesus. There seems to be no question then that Jesus' words about the power of the kingdom in the parables are now confirmed with the works of His power and being able to still storms and raise the dead. That the miracles Jesus performed were signs of the nearness of the kingdom of God, revealing Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus was not just a famous teacher. Jesus was not just an Old Testament scholar and theologian. Jesus was not some first century miracle worker. Jesus is God. And that's what Mark wants us to see. His kingship, therefore, is not merely over individual souls. 
Jesus would conquer individual souls and bring them into the kingdom. But Jesus is not just a king over individual hidden hearts. Jesus is king over the world, manifesting itself in the fact that he tells the wind and the waves to do what he wants. This is no king that is hidden. This is a king that is to be revealed. And whatever your understanding of the kingdom may be this morning, you need to deal with that reality that before our eyes is a kingdom and a king that comes with great power that is undeniable before many eyewitnesses. It is not something that is hidden away. It is not something that's cast off into the future. It is something that Jesus is establishing here and now, is expanding and is growing and is revealing His power to the world. The deity of Jesus is on full display in this account. And I just want to remind you that the Bible affirms explicitly the deity of Jesus Christ. We don't need the life of Jesus to see His deity, although it's clearly on display here on the pages of Scripture. In the Old Testament, the Bible predicts Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. He shall be called Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The angel goes to Joseph and says his name shall be Emmanuel, which means literally God is with us. And then we read that Jesus admitted he was full deity. He told Pilate that he was God. Jesus was arrested according to the law. John 19, 7 says, the people said he ought to die because he has made himself out to be God. And Jesus did that. Jesus insightfully revealed himself to be the Son of Man, which was a messianic title taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that pointed to his deity because it placed the Son of Man equal to the Ancient of Days. And that was Jesus' favorite title, the Son of Man. Jesus radically said, you couldn't even know the Father, but through Him. Jesus said in John chapter 5, the Father has given me full authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. Jesus clearly said that He came from heaven. He told the religious leaders, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am from another world, indicating the fact that He came from heaven, that He was God. In human flesh. We've already seen in Mark's gospel that Jesus unmistakably claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. We've seen that Jesus repeatedly claimed the power to forgive sins, which belongs to God alone. We see in other places in the gospel that Jesus uniquely claimed that the angels of heaven were his own angels. Jesus even equally proclaimed God's kingdom as his own kingdom in Matthew 13, 41. And John 8, 58, Jesus shockingly claimed God's name, Yahweh, I am. He told the Jews before Abraham was, I am. I am deity. I am God in human flesh. Jesus provocatively said in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Jesus unflinchingly claimed the right to receive worship. Throughout the New Testament, there is no mistake that Jesus claimed He was God. And after this morning, there will be no mistake in your mind that He is God because of the power He puts on full display. 
And by the way, the New Testament writers routinely declare his deity. Paul said he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Colossians 2.9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's not as if Jesus just had the power of God. Jesus was God and therefore had the power of God. And perhaps no other place in all of Scripture do we see the combining together of the fullness of Jesus' humanity and the fullness of His deity than in this very account of the stealing of the storm before our eyes. In this event of Jesus calming the storm with the disciples in the boat in verses 35-41, through 41, we see the deity of Jesus revealed and the account opens up to us in five riveting scenes. This is a dramatic display of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And my prayer as we go through these verses is that you will not leave here without bowing to King Jesus. For this King who has the power to redeem sins, this King who has the power to cast out devils, to heal diseases, and to still storms, is the same God who is full of wrath. The storm of His fury someday will be unleashed and no soul will escape it except for those who find themselves in the boat with Jesus and the salvation that He provides through His atoning death. So let's look at this account, five riveting accounts. Let's begin in verses 35 and 36. Let's talk about the setting to the storm. The setting to the storm, the context. Verse 35 helps us understand something of the timeline. Notice your Bibles. Mark says, On that day when evening had come. What day was this? Well, I think it was the same day of Mark 4, verse 1, when Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and He got into the boat to sit in it. Remember, because the crowd was so massive. He sat in the boat, And he began to preach to the large crowds. He's explaining the parables to the disciples privately as the crowds are dismissed. And apparently, we don't know exactly everything about the timeline, but apparently some more crowds came after he privately explained the parable of the sower. And he began to give more parables, the parables of which we saw last week. This was a big day of ministry. It was a tiring day. And really, it began earlier in that morning, the Pharisees blasphemy, blasphemously accusing Jesus of operating in the power of Beelzebul back in chapter 3. And you remember as Jesus is preaching in the house, his mother and his brothers come to kidnap him because they think that he is out of his senses. I believe this is all happening on the same day. Jesus did not waste one minute of his life. He used every minute to fully reveal who He was to anyone who would listen. And He was consumed with preaching. And so the evening has come. Darkness is coming. He is tired, revealing the fullness of His humanity. And so we read that He said to His disciples, let us go across to the other side. That is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is leaving Capernaum, that is the western side. He's heading to the eastern shore, which was less populated, but there were people there. Remember that Jesus said back in chapter 1, 
And verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. Verse 39 says, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. And when he crosses the other side, that's the exact thing that he does. He begins to cast out demons. And then he goes in Galilee further into Nazareth, his hometown, to preach in the synagogues. Jesus is not running from ministry. Jesus is running to ministry. But the fullness of his humanity is on display. He needs a rest. And I take it that the disciples understand this not to be a suggestion, but a command. And so they have their boat there. This was either Peter's and Andrew's or James and John's. They were fishermen and they had given up the fishing business, but they had provided their boat as a means of ministry transportation. And so the disciples took this order from their master the captain of the ship, if you will. And we read in verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Just as he was. Just as he was, all worn out from a long day of preaching and ministry. Just as he was, this former carpenter turned preacher, not a sailor. And just as they were, experienced sailors, fishermen, navigators of the seas. Now, interestingly, the end of verse 36, and only Mark records this, says other boats were with him. Other boats were with him. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean there were other boats in the boat with him. But the strange wording indicates that the boats that were going with Jesus's boat in the voyage were with him in the sense that they constituted his followers. No doubt there were many among the crowds who were part of the outer band of Jesus' disciples. And they have their boats with Jesus. And they are clingers on. And they are following along with Jesus. Some of them true believers. Some of them were part of the 120 in the upper room after Jesus was raised from the dead. But many of them were just like that seed that was cast on the rocky soil and the thorny soil. They were not true believers. Mesmerized by Jesus' miracles, yes. Wanting to hear good sermons, yes. Having a superficial outward form of belief, sure. Saved physically from the storm, yes. Saved eternally, many of them not. John 6, 66 says, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There were other boats and other people who entered the storm together. Many of them seeing the power of Jesus and walking away with unbelieving hearts. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus and His saving power must always be put on full display in the church. Because it matters not what denomination you belong to. It matters not what your view of baptism may be. The church is always a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers. There were those this day in the boats with Jesus who were never truly with Jesus. They saw his power and they did not believe. But I want you to note here that there is not the slightest indication of a storm. Have you noticed that in this setting to the storm? This was a routine voyage across the sea. These experienced fishermen navigated countless times. There were no signs of trouble. There was no argument with Jesus. There is simple faith. And no signs of trouble. And oftentimes that is exactly how trials will be in your life. 
They will come when there is not the slightest tint of trouble. In fact, they will come on the end of great success and great blessing because God wants to test your faith and my faith. In 1986, an intact boat was uncovered by archaeologists in the mud on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, about five miles south of Jesus' headquarters of Capernaum. This boat was about 27 feet long, about 8 feet wide, and close to 5 feet high. Carbon-14 dating places it in the exact time frame of Jesus' life, uh, ranging from 120 B.C. to A.D. 40. And as these archaeologists uncovered this boat, they found that it was propelled by four rowers, two on each side, and it could hold about 15 people, the exact amount or close to the exact amount of people in the boat, 12 of the apostles and then Jesus being 13. But neither this vessel that Jesus was in or the other vessels that were with Jesus on the sea that day would be capsized and washed over like this particular vessel. Little did they know that they would be in a storm. But once in the storm, little did they know they could ever survive such a massive gust of wind and waves. But Jesus was with them. He was with them. And with the setting to the storm in place, we can now move to the second scene And we'll call this the stirring of the storm. The stirring of the storm, verse 37. Suddenly out of nowhere, as storms notoriously do on the Sea of Galilee, verse 37 says, notice your Bibles, a great windstorm arose. Now I want to tell you a little bit about the Sea of Galilee because most of you have not been to the Sea of Galilee and don't really understand some of the factors and features surrounding the sea. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it was essentially a freshwater lake. It was about 13 miles long and 7 miles wide. It was fed by some underground springs, but the majority of its water um, came from the Jordan River. The sea itself set almost 700 feet below sea level, making it the lowest body of freshwater in the entire world. And even today, if you go to the area known as Galilee in Jesus' day. The Sea of Galilee is known even today for its clean drinking water and its bustling fishing industry. But the sea itself, 700 feet below sea level, situated in a basin known as the Jordan Valley, which is part of the Great Rift Valley, is surrounded by steep hills, particularly on the east side. Mount Hermon, which is a short distance away, rises some 9,300 feet above sea level, so that the cold air of Mount Hermon, combined with the, 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 the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee, arouses dangerous storms that come out of nowhere. This explains why the disciples have no clue this storm is coming, even though they are experienced fishermen. These mountains surrounding the sea are are notorious for their deep ravines that then act as funnels for whirling winds to shoot down upon the lake without notice. In fact, as late as 1992, I believe that's when Hurricane Andrew hit Florida, 1992, 
There was a storm on the Sea of Galilee that created 10-foot-high waves resulting in major flooding in the city of Tiberias, which is located right there along the shore. That gives you some understanding of what they are up against. But I want you to highlight that word in verse 37, windstorm. It's the Greek word lalops. And here is how it is defined in Greek lexicons. It's defined this way. A violent attack of wind. A squall. A storm breaking forth from black thunderclouds and furious gusts with floods of rain and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Not exactly what we would describe as a windstorm where you put your windbreaker on and just sort of deal with it. Literally, this could be translated hurricane in the Greek. In fact, the Nasby translates it a fierce gale of wind. Matthew uses the Greek word seismos, which literally means earthquake. This was a storm like you have never seen before. This had waves and wind that were frightening. And Luke 8.23 says that the winds descended on the sea, describing exactly what I just described to you, how the wind whips through the ravines of the mountains above and smashes onto the water. Here is the point to see. This whole scenario spelled mighty trouble for the disciples. And this was not just rowing across a creek. This was a five-mile journey to the other side. And the rest of verse 37 explains the chaos that ensued. Though briefly, Mark describes it. He says in verse 37, And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The imperfect tense in Greek pictures the waves repetitively crashing into the boat. One wave comes, they go to dump water, another wave comes. It is a fruitless endeavor. Repetitively, waves crashing into the boat. This is no simulator. This is no video game. This is no amusement park ride. This induced sheer terror and frantic attempts to dump out loads of water with the likely reality that survival tactics were vain attempts just to extend one's life a few more minutes. In fact, Matthew 8.24 says the boat was being covered in waves. There was chaos all around. There was the noise of the wind. There were the screams of the disciples. Luke 8.23 says they began to be swamped and to be in danger. So here is the picture. The stirring of this storm. Death threatened them. Confusion and chaos pervaded them. And the bolts of lightning resembled their own lives flashing before their eyes. These were not novices. These were experienced fishermen. And they had never seen anything like this before. And that takes us to the next riveting scene. We've seen the setting to the storm, verses 35 and 36. The stirring of the storm, verse 37. Now notice this in verse 38. The sleeping in the storm. Ironically, and perhaps humorously, only because we're reading the story and we're not part of it, in the midst of all this chaos, verse 38 informs us that Jesus is sleeping. Verse 38 says, He was in 
the stern asleep on the cushion. And notice the word but at the beginning of verse 38. This stands in stark contrast to everything that is going on with the waves and the wind and the disciples. You can imagine scurrying around trying to do their jobs as sailors to get rid of the water, adjusting the sails, whatever they could do. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Now, I do believe that there are parallels between this account and the account of Jonah and Jonah chapter 1. But the parallels are to show us the contrasts. And I believe that as Mark writes this, he wants us to think of Jonah. Mark would have been an Old Testament scholar. What do we see with Jonah? Well, Jonah slept because he was fearless of God and he was running from God. Jesus slept because he was fearless of the storm and he was trusting in the Father. Jonah was in disobedience. Jesus was in obedience. Jonah was running from ministry. Jesus was rowing to ministry. Stark contrast. This is, by the way, the only record in the entire Bible of Jesus sleeping. We know that Jesus often stayed up all night in prayer. We know that Jesus often rose early to pray to His Father. But at some point, the fullness of His humanity compelled Him to sleep. And as I said earlier, perhaps no other passage in all of the Bible encapsulates His deity and humanity. In one moment, He's asleep. and the next moment, He's stilling the storm. As one writer says in this grand display, the opposites of weakness and omnipotence don't clash, but they coalesce in a beautiful harmony too magnificent to be the product of human imagination. And that's the glory of the God-man. No violent rocking of the boat. No sloshing of the water on his drenched body. The eerie squeal of the squalling wind or the the desperate screams of the disciples could awake the servant of the Lord. Jesus was like a ringed out washcloth in His service to the Father the day before, exhausted and all dried up, and now He's soaked to the core in His robe, and yet He's so tired He stays asleep. Curled up in a little ball on the rough boards of the sea vessel with a tiny cushion as a pillow, Jesus was resting physically. And I just want to say that not only points to the humanity of Jesus, but it also points to the work ethic of Jesus. And it also points to the trust Jesus had in his Father. Here he is modeling, think about it, what he just preached in the parable of the farmer who planted the seed and then slept. You remember that from last week? He said the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, chapter 4 verse 26. And after he scatters the seed, what does he do? He sleeps and he rises night and day. He can't do anything else. The seed's going to sprout and grow on its own. He doesn't know how it happened. Here's Jesus. He's just scattered the seed of the word. He's preached to the multitudes, the the gospel and the message of the kingdom. And now he is resting, trusting in the Father. And beloved, I want to tell you this morning, that's how we must live our lives. We must rest in our efforts to disseminate the gospel and then leave the rest to Almighty God. That's exactly what Jesus does. And not this storm or any other storm we face 
can halt the power of the preached word to bear fruit in this world. The church is to be a mouth house of the truth. It is to declare it with every fiber of its being, with every breath in its body, and then it's to go home and to go to sleep and to trust God that the harvest will come. But something else humorous happens in this account. Again, only from our perspective because we're not in the boat. These experienced sailors who grew up on the water, they had countless storms that they endured, turned to a carpenter for help. This reveals the desperation of the situation. It reveals how bad the storm is getting. Verse 38 goes on to say, And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now the language of that suggests they were already on their way to death. They don't say we're going to die. We are dying. <laughs> we are in the midst of death. Do you not care? It's interesting they call him teacher. Matthew says they call him Lord. Luke says they call him master. Mark says they call him teacher. There's no contradiction here. Remember, these various titles are being used in the chorus of chaos. One disciple is calling him a teacher, another Lord, another master. But I think that the reason Mark highlights teacher is to show the weakness of their faith. There was at least one or two disciples that simply viewed him as a teacher. By the end of this account, it's clear that none of them viewed him as merely a teacher. Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Now their question do you not care that we are perishing? Is really ridiculous, is it not? Think about this. They already watched Jesus up to this point heal thousands of people. Give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, cripples were walking, demons were cast out. In a few short months, more compassion and care and power demonstrated in one man was more than all of the care and kindness of humanity combined in history up to that point. Of course he cared. Of course he had compassion for this nucleus of the church, the foundation of the church, remember? How would the church continue without the disciples? And they're asking this ridiculous question? Do you care? that we are perishing? That's just like us though, isn't it? When someone else is going through a trial, it's easy for us to tell them, why don't you just shake out of it? Suck it up. Deal with it. Don't you know that Jesus cares for you? But when we're in the midst of it, sometimes we feel like God has turned His back upon us. Sometimes we feel as if we're not near to God in the midst of our pain. Read the Psalms. The honesty of the psalmist in crying out to God. But all of this is short-sighted, isn't it? It's faithless and it's sinful. The question is not only a ridiculous one, it's also a rebuking one. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? That's really an underhanded rebuke, isn't it? It's like saying, Jesus... We're doing all the work. You're sleeping. Don't you care? 
Remember, it was Jesus' idea to cross the sea. There were no signs of storms. So I think the disciples are essentially saying, look, this was your idea. You got us in this mess. You're going to sleep and not do anything about it? Their question is akin to a rebuke. But their words do reveal faith, do they not? They are, after all, turning to Jesus. They are turning to this carpenter who's not a sailor, so they understand there is some power that Jesus can display that will deliver them from this situation. They're going to Jesus to help. But their words do reveal faith on the one hand, faithlessness on the other. They're criticizing His care, His provision, His delivering abilities. They had seen Him do away with sickness and sorrow and disease, demons. Now, they want Him to do something, but they had not up to this point seen Him overturn a natural disaster. Who can control the weather but God alone? I think that they're beginning to see that Jesus is the Son of God. They were familiar with the Psalms. Psalm 89 O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or Psalm 65, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. I think that even in the midst of their criticism, and they do, by the way, sound quite a bit like the captain of Jonah's ship. Remember in Jonah chapter 1, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And the Greek Septuagint, that word perish is the same one Mark uses. Mark has Jonah 1 on his mind. The disciples are like the captain of the ship, going to Jesus. Why are you asleep? And yet in the midst of that criticism, they're familiar with the Psalms. They know that God alone has the power to calm the seas. They're not praying to God, they're turning to Jesus, which in actuality is a prayer to God, but their theology is not fully developed yet. And yet this passage reveals not only the humanity and deity of Jesus, but also His sovereignty and His humility because instead of rebuking the disciples, Jesus rebukes the storm. I love this. We move from the setting to the storm and the stirring of the storm and the sleeping in the storm. Now to verse 39, the sovereignty over the storm. Notice your Bibles, verse 39 first tells us, and He awoke and rebuked the wind. I love the simplicity of this. There's no magical incantation. There's no mystical movements. Jesus gets up, and it's as routine as grabbing a cup of coffee. He gets up and rebukes the wind. He powerfully had spoken a word to demons to come out of men, and now He powerfully rebukes 
the seas. He exercises them. Literally, in the Greek, epitomao is the word that is used. Epitomao was used back in chapter 1, verse 25, chapter 3 and verse 12 to talk about Jesus rebuking the demons. Interestingly, the Jews believed that exorcisms, when accompanied with a rebuke, revealed the establishment of God's righteous rule in the world. Now, we aren't to think that Satan was behind the weather. Jesus wasn't talking to demons in the sea. He was taming the disaster on the sea. This is metaphorical language. He rebuked the wind as if it was a person. There were no demons in the sea. Satan is not in control of the weather. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-powerful. But this is a metaphor. Think back to Psalm 19, where the heavens are described as a voice that declares God's glory. Or Psalm 98, it speaks about the rivers clapping their hands and singing for joy. Or Isaiah 55, the mountains and the hills singing and the trees clapping their hands. Scripture oftentimes attributes personal qualities to inanimate objects in nature to reveal the power of God over nature. It's as if Jesus is telling His disciples, all I have to do is speak a word to these inanimate objects of nature, and it's as if they have ears and wills to obey Me, because I am the ruler of nature. In fact, in Genesis 1, 9 and 10, we read that the pre-incarnate Christ, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. He let the dry land appear and it was so. He called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together He called seas and God saw that it was good. How did God do this? Genesis 1.9, the pre-incarnate Christ said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. He spoke a word. In Genesis 1, the pre-incarnate Christ sets the perimeters of the seas by speaking a word. He puts things to order. Here in Mark 4, He's putting things back in order. He's putting the weather in its place. At a command, at a word, He rebukes the wind. And notice your Bibles in verse 39. After looking up and rebuking the wind, He then turned and looked down and He calmed the sea. He said to the sea, Peace, be still. Fama'o is the Greek used. It could literally be translated, get this, be muzzled, be muzzled. Stop your commotion. Right now, stop. Hush, be quiet. Don't say another word. One commentator says you could even translate it. Be quiet, shut up. That's how authoritative it was. How comforting for the disciples. I remember a little boy, I might hit my foot on a wall, hit my head on a wall. I remember one time I was at my uncle's wedding and I don't remember if it was the reception or the wedding hall, the church or what, but I was on a steep hill and there's a sliding glass door and I decided I would run down that hill as fast as I could and run right into the place of the event and slide on the floor as if to say I'm here. The only problem was the sliding glass door was shut and I bounced off that door like a basketball off a glass backboard. But there were times when I would hurt myself like that and my dad was so funny, he would 
speak to that inanimate object, the wall, the chair, sometimes spank it and say, don't you ever hurt my son again. And it would make me laugh. And it would comfort me to know he was in control. It's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is comforting the disciples by saying, this weather is not in control. And let me just say this, coronavirus is not in control. As R.C. Sproul says, there is not one maverick molecule in this entire universe. Jesus is the creator and Jesus is the sustainer. The one who gathered the waters together and put them to order can put them in order and put them back in their place. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He created all things. He sustains all things. And let me use this illustration. He is the universal superglue that holds this world together. He alone is Lord of all. In all those passages we've looked at in the Old Testament, Psalm 107, Psalm 65, Jesus is doing here in the calming of the storm what God alone could do. But that's not even the climax of the story. The calming of the storm is not the climax. We've seen the setting to the storm, verses 35 and 36, and the stirring of the storm, verse 37, followed by the sleeping in the storm, verse 38, and then verse 39, the sovereignty over the storm. But now we see the shock after the storm. The shock after the storm, verses 40 and 41. The account ends in a way you could never imagine. If you were writing this story, um, you would think, that the fear would be gone. Not so. Jesus poses a question in verse 40 that's answered by a second question. Notice your Bibles. He said to them, this is after everything's calmed down, why are you so afraid? And then he answers that question, doesn't he? With another question. Have you still no faith? He can read their hearts. They had some faith but not full faith. Why are you so afraid? Notice Jesus doesn't say, why were you afraid? He knows why they were afraid. There was a storm. He's asking, why are you afraid? Why are you still afraid? Do you have no faith in who I am? That's what he's saying. They were filled with fear, not because of the storm before the calm, but now the calm after the storm. How could he so dramatically, suddenly, completely tell nature to obey him? And it's as if Jesus is saying, stop gawking and admit what is obvious. I'm the son of God. But they were fearful. Fearful shock after the storm. And I would say, 
more fearful now than they were during the storm. Notice verse 41. Mark says, and they were filled, notice it says, with great fear. Great fear consumed them. The outer storm became an inner storm of their hearts, which was much more severe than the one on the seas. This is, by the way, the third time in this passage that Mark uses that word great. It's the Greek word mega. That's where we get our English word mega, which means large. He used it in verse 37 to speak about the mega storm that legitimately threatened their lives. Then in verse 39, he spoke about the great calm, the mega calm after Jesus stilled the storm. And now he's talking about their great fear, their mega fear. So that it stands out in contrast to the fear they had before. That was just fear. This is mega fear. Mega fear. This fear is elevated. Why is that? Because they don't know who they're dealing with. Notice the end of verse 41. They said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him? God had silenced their mouths so that all they could do was ask the question. They didn't dare answer it, but I think in their hearts they knew the answer. Doctors can fix bodies. Pastors can sometimes fix broken marriages. Mechanics can fix broken airplanes, all highly complex procedures done with skill and precision. But nobody, nobody except God can fix the weather. And Jesus did. So in one sense, this is a low point because there's not the full confession of faith in who Jesus is. Their faith is not, or their fear is not leading to full faith. But it's also a high point because they're beginning to grasp this has to be God. This is not a mere teacher. This is deity. Did we just rebuke God and tell Him that He didn't care if we died? I I think there was silence in that boat the rest of the way. You know what I think Jesus did? I think He went back to sleep. Fear of God is one reason people today say they don't believe in God. That might sound strange to you. How can an atheist hate someone they don't believe exists? Why do they care what you believe? They know God exists and they fear God. Why do you suppose forecasters and scientists, they can talk about the weather, they can talk about cells, as if they have their own power and never mention God. Why is that? Because... They're more fearful of the supernatural. The natural, oh, we can help you. Here's what the weather's going to do. This is what you need to do. Here's what the disease is going to do. If everyone gets vaccined, everyone will be just much better. We can control the natural. You never hear a forecaster or a scientist mention God. Why? Because they fear Him more than anything in the natural world and they don't want to admit it. And here's the irony. In all their fear-mongering, 
they are revealing that they actually fear God above all things. Seek shelter, we'll get you through this hurricane. Get vaccined, everything will be okay. Really, they fear God. The problem is their fear doesn't lead to faith. Eventually, for the disciples, their fear will lead to faith. They're beginning to respond to Jesus less like a rabbi that they follow and more like a God that they need to worship. As a matter of fact, we won't turn to it for sake of time, but in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walks on the water when they're in the boat again. That response is much different. After Jesus walks on the water, we read this, and those in the boat, Matthew 14, 33, worshiped Him, and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You remember the Israelites following the Exodus? They feared God after seeing His great power and the, and the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They feared the Lord, and then it says they trusted in Him. Fear of God produces faith. Now, as we close our time this morning, there are many practical lessons to draw from this account, and I just want to kind of run through these. I hope these will be an encouragement to you. The first lesson is this. The storms of life teach us both about God and ourselves. They teach us both about God and ourselves. Calvin said the beginning of wisdom is twofold. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves. Instead of focusing on the uncomfortable nature of our trials, we need to seek to learn in them what God is revealing about Himself and what God is revealing about us. It's been said that the character of man is tested in trials. And I think that is principally true. The storms of life teach us both about God and ourselves. And we need to listen and we need to look when we're in the midst of storms. Disciples learned a lot about themselves and a lot about God. Secondly, the storms of life are not always the result of our sin, but are often the result of God's sovereignty. You know, it's often said that if you're going through a difficult time, that's your fault, that's God's discipline on your life. It could be. The problem is you don't know. Sometimes it's just the sovereignty. You remember this storm, Jesus led them into the storm. And it wasn't malicious. It wasn't to punish the disciples. Jesus didn't protect them from the trial. He led them through it. He led them to it. And He protected them in the midst of it. And oftentimes, our trials and storms of life are not the result of sin. They're the result of God's sovereignty wanting to grow us in holiness. Remember James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials, knowing that it is the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. You want wisdom of why you're going through a trial? God's the one that sovereignly led you in it. Ask Him. He'll answer. He'll conform you to the image of His Son. Number three, the storms of life are a means by which God humbles us for our own good and for His glory. The disciples were wrong for blaming Jesus. It revealed their lack of faith. But they were right in seeing that Jesus could provide a solution to their problem. In the storms of life, it is wise to be humble. 
That's what the Bible says. That's one of the reasons we go through difficult times. 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves therefore into the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Don't be guilty like the disciples. Do you care that we are perishing? Do you care, God, what we are facing? Of course He cares. Cast all your anxieties on Him. He is your anchor. Cast them on Him. Number four, the storms of life for a true Christian always include the winds and the waves of persecution. True believers will always be persecuted for their faith. Some more than others in varying degrees. Peter said this, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test your faith as though something strange were happening to you. Peter was the eyewitness account that gave to Mark this story. And Peter says, Trials are not to be a surprise. Persecution is not to be a surprise. In early Christian art, it often pictured Christians in a boat with Jesus to convey the idea that the boat will ultimately never sink if you are in the boat with Jesus. And soon, the readers of Mark's account would come under the fierce storm of Nero's reign and persecution. But Jesus was in the boat with them. Mark wants them to know that. Number five, the storms of life tempt us to listen to the pessimism of the world instead of the promises of God. You know, the disciples did not drown in the water, but they did allow the wind and the waves to drown out the promises of God. How do we avoid this sort of character in the storms of life? Well, we hold on to God's Word as an anchor. Do you remember just one little clue in the story? Jesus said in verse 35, let us go to the other side. That was a promise. The disciples were not trusting in the promise of God's Word. Instead, they allowed the storm to drown out the promise of God's Word. In the midst of the storm, it's the Word of God that needs to speak truth to you, and that's what you need to cling to. Number six, the storms of life teach us, this is an important one, that it is better to be in the boat with Jesus in the worst storm than to be outside of the boat in a light mist. And that is to simply say this, and it's by experience. In the midst of my trials, I feel closer to Jesus than when I'm not in the midst of a trial. The same is true for you. The peace of God passes all understanding. In the midst of that, and when we come out the other side, we may not personally feel stronger, but that's not the point. We know the strength of Jesus, and our faith is strengthened. I'd rather be in the boat with Jesus in the midst of the worst storm than be outside of the boat. Because in those moments, I'm close to Jesus My faith is strengthened, even though I'm not a masochist and you shouldn't be either. There is peace that comes for the true Christian. And seventh, I'll leave you with this. The storms of life strengthen our faith. The storms of life strengthen our faith. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul, the last words that he ever wrote to the church. He's come to the end of his life a life fraught with many dangers, many experiences of persecution, many trials, both outside of the church, within the church. Paul comes to the end of his life and he makes this statement, 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul makes this statement at the end of his life. He knows he's going to be killed. He makes a statement at the end of his life. I know God will safely bring me through into His heavenly kingdom. He had that confidence because he had been through so many storms. That's why he wrote Romans 8.28. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those called according to His purpose. Paul knew that. So here's the question. What storms do you face? And what is God teaching you in the midst of those? Be thankful. Press on. Don't fear the future. Fear God. And don't fear Him to the point that you don't have faith. You're not in control of where your boat is going, but Jesus is. And as long as He is in control, you have nothing to fear. You trust Him. You cling to Him. You cry out to Him in faith, not fear. Call out to Him in trust, not trepidation. And just know this. The greatest storm of His wrath is yet to come. So make sure you're in the boat. Make sure you're in the boat. There are many boats with Jesus this day. They survived the temporary storm, but they won't survive the eternal storm. So here's my admonition to you. Don't be caught in the storm without Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're here this morning and you don't have assurance of the forgiveness of your sins, the hope of eternal life, do not leave without coming and speaking to me or someone else. We'll point you to the Word of God. We'll point you to Jesus. You can get in the boat with Jesus and be eternally safe. That's the main point of this wonderful event in the life of our Lord. We are safe in the boat and in the storm with Jesus. Outside of the boat, there's no safety. Come to Jesus. Come today in repentance and faith. He'll let you on board Because if you try to get on board, you're revealing the fact that He's already called you. And He'll pull you in. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this dramatic account, Lord, that puts on full display Your power, the authority of King Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal, we've seen Jesus cast demons out, but now we see Him Calming the weather, controlling the weather. Lord, this is frightening in one sense. And Lord, it also compels us to look to you in faith because of your great power. We thank you for your word. All the glory goes to Christ. We thank you for the rich salvation you provide through your Son. Lord, we pray whatever trials we face today, that we'll trust You're with us if we're in union with Christ. We're safe, we're protected, our life is hidden with God in Christ. We thank You for these truths. We pray You would seal them to our hearts as we sing this concluding hymn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.